0: This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, just search Bearings on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click subscribe. Or visit us on bearings.com. That's B A R I N G S.com. On today's episode, I spoke with Mike Freno, head of global markets for bearings. Mike oversees all of the firm's fixed income, public equity, and multi asset investments, which account for a combined AUM of over $260 billion as of March 31st, 2019. Mike is also chairman of the Global High Yield Allocation Committee and the Global Investment Grade Allocation Committee. He's worked in the industry since 1999 and has extensive experience on the buy side, focusing on both equity and debt investments. You know, it was really interesting for me to hear about how Mike and team are managing interest rate risk and credit risk at this point in the cycle. And I also found it fascinating to hear how they're finding some of the best opportunities outside of traditional indexes, whether that's in high yield, emerging markets, or investment grade credit. All right, Mike Farino, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Greg. Excited for you you to be here. Um, So I just wanted to kind of set a little background. I think you've got a really unique perspective uh, here at Bearings that you oversee groups uh, covering the full fixed income spectrum here, uh, also equities and multi-asset. So as part of that role, you have a really uh, great lens into what our investment teams are thinking, what they're doing, and the different strategies from day to day. Um, where they're seeing value, all that kind of stuff. But perhaps more importantly, you have a great lens into what our clients are saying day to day, right? So you're out there talking to our clients and you're out there listening to them and and hearing their challenges and what they're trying to sell for. So I guess I wanted to start there and just ask you, um, what are you hearing from our clients? What's kind of, to use a cliche, keeping them up at night?
1: Well, it's been a consistent theme for several years. The the search for yield is is nothing new and that continues to be a challenge and a thing that investors are constantly looking for and returns overall um but recently there's been more challenges you know added to that mix if you will so concerns about the macro environment. A sure. year ago, we were certainly on stronger footing from a global economic standpoint. Um, the concerns around the U.S. and China from a trade standpoint. Mm-hmm. The continuation around what will happen or won't happen um, as it relates to, to Brexit. Um, and then where are we in the cycle? This has been a long cycle that's right. lasted for you know almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's constant head, headlines around um, high-yield-type loans and bonds. Um, how much risk is in those? And so when you couple all those together along with um investors challenge to get returns into to their portfolios from a low interest rate standpoint mm-hmm. it's quite a tough time for investors
0: yeah yeah so i guess there's no shortage of things to worry about if we take it to the level of managing a fixed income allocation with all the concerns that you just highlighted so if we think about geopolitics we think about late in the credit cycle uncertainty around, you know, rates and where they're going and the continued kind of search for yield. Uh, how are you thinking about a fixed income allocation today? And what advice are you kind of giving to clients when you're talking about this? And and I'm kind of interested in just in it more from a kind of a philosophical level um, in terms of how you think about managing that allocation through a cycle.
1: Yeah, and I think this is one of the areas that has started to evolve a lot with investors and to, to think more strategically in their allocations to not only core fixed income, but also when you move down into high yield, think of it as a strategic allocation. And the conversation should be around, do we overweight or do we underweight? But you should be in the asset classes through cycles. It's very, very difficult in any asset class to start making high-level top-down macro calls. Mm -hmm. Um, A year ago, folks were were predicting that the 10-year was going to end the uh, 2018 at at 4%. We're now coming close to 2%. So the ability to predict those macro calls is very, very challenging. Um, so I think investors need to say, we're in this asset class for a period of time. So we have a need that it fulfills. Mm-hmm. There may be some level of volatility that's associated with this, but the ability to come in and out of it is is quite a challenge. And I think investors need to be open to using different tools. And that means thinking beyond what's in a core index or okay. an aggregate index or even a high yield index and exploring other things outside of that. Um, there's many valuable things that are, are, aren't index-based. Securitizations as a whole, if you, you narrow that down even mm-hmm. to more CLOs, there's really a lot of value that you can get from those if you're willing to open up your mind a little bit outside of a traditional index and incorporate those into your strategies.
0: Got it, got it. You made a lot of good points there. I think that's a really interesting kind of framework that you laid out when you think about investing strategically, kind of being comfortable looking outside of a traditional index, uh, and also this concept of kind of avoiding big sweeping rate calls or credit calls. I think those are all kind of really interesting points. Let's kind of bring that to the real world and how you and the team here at Bearings have implemented that over the years. And, um, you know, I know you kind of came up uh, on the high yield business as an analyst and then a portfolio manager, and then ultimately running that business. Talk to us about kind of how you implemented some of those philosophies there and how that some of those uh, philosophies have worked out in high yield.
1: Well, as you mentioned, we've spent a lot of time talking to investors throughout the globe. And one of the things we we noted several years back, and this is probably about a little over five years ago, that many of them, when they were talking about high yield assets in particular, they were thinking about them in a very siloed fashion. So whether it was U.S. bonds, U.S. loans, um, some were more progressive and looked at European loans and European bonds, mm-hmm. but they were not looking at them in the aggregate, basically right. saying, can we can we maybe first and foremost take a a a portfolio and make them global in nature and we've done that on the high grade side for years but in high yield it really hadn't been done up until that point um and then could we start putting these asset classes together and i think it was really along those lines that we felt that investors had and and frankly were asking us for a better solution to their high yield allocation Hmm. specifically We note that over time, these asset classes do tend to track one another. They tend to move in the same direction over time. That said, the technicals in each market are dramatically different. Whether you've got loans or bonds, the prevalence of ETFs in certain markets, it's much higher than in others. The retail market in Europe is much different than it is in the U.S. And so someone who's living and breathing this every day has a much higher probability of capturing those inefficiencies due to technical differences that you couldn't otherwise see. And as a result, we aspire to create a portfolio of things that tend to look like high-yield risk and high-yield return, but we wanted to to offer folks comparable returns to that with a lower volatility product.
0: Okay. So what does that include specifically?
1: So that's going to include the core asset classes would be your high-yield loans and bonds, both in the U.S. and Europe, and that's going to be our developed market piece. And then opportunistically, we look to introduce some emerging market corporates to that strategy um, and even a larger allocation now to CLO tranches and debt tranches, primarily at the double B and single B. And then opportunistically, given we haven't been in a large default rate or distressed environment, mm-hmm. opportunistically adding some level of distressed assets to the portfolio. Got
0: it. Okay. So the idea is it's, it's basically all below investment grade, risk, uh, and potential return profile. Uh, but as you're saying, sort of the different regional differences and technical differences in each market can, I guess, cause prices to move away from fundamentals at different points and almost uh, set up, I don't know if you would call it an arbitrage opportunity, but uh, create, I guess, pockets of relative value. Is that a kind of fair? Well, look?
1: yeah, it's a good point because if you if you look at many of the issuers now in the larger names, and we can take a, a company who issues loans for an example, many of those large companies are issuing in multi-currencies. And so they may have a dollar-denominated tranche as well as a euro-denominated tranche. And because There may be an instance where the U.S. retail market is seeing outflows from the loan mutual funds, whereas Europe doesn't have that. There's an opportunity to be selling the euro and to be buying the dollar exposure. Um, On on the flip side, if you were looking back historically, Europe typically traded much wider to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the same credit risk. You can debate on whether it's a good credit risk or not, but it is the exact same credit risk for the same company. You're just buying it in a different currency and being able to hedge that currency out, you're effectively picking up additional spread in return for no additional risk. Right, right.
0: So you're chair of the High Yield Allocation Committee today globally. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing out there today? Where's the team uh, finding value and and maybe what's less attractive?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we believe these markets are large and we deploy a very large team. So we think there's opportunities in all those markets. So ours is, it tends to be just a preference to one market over the other and have allocations to all markets. Again, this goes back to an earlier point of trying to make, huge macro calls to say go zero in Europe versus 100% in US is not something that frankly, these asset classes lend themselves too, mm-hmm. There's transactional costs. It's very difficult to do that. Um, so when we make allocation changes, it's just a basis of relative value. And, and where we are today is we're slightly increasing our loan exposure to the extent of, of bond exposure. Okay. And that's primarily due to the run we've seen in bonds. The spread between the two now is very, very comparable. And while you know, the rate situation is slightly different than where you were looking from a strictly a risk premium standpoint, loans, at the senior part of the capital structure makes more sense. On a geographical basis, um, we're reducing slightly Europe to increase the U.S. I think the U.S. economic system is marginally better than what we have in Europe. And and again, the spreads don't reflect that. Got it,
0: got it. And is that positive view on loans? I mean, would you consider that a contrarian call
1: yeah it's a great question i think you know historically the loan asset class has appealed really in the us market and to some extent in the retail and wealth channels as a hedge against interest rate moves mm-hmm. and as a result when over a year and a half leading up to really the first quarter of this year when the narrative was around an increase in rates Loans saw a lot of inflows, and now you've seen that reverse right. itself um, because the probability of rate increases is almost none, and the decreases is increasing every day. Uh, we continue to look at it on a risk premium basis. Mm-hmm. What are you getting paid in terms of risk for that? And that, to us, is mispriced. And I think as long as investors continue to look more along the lines of, of making a rate call, and that creates inefficiency on the credit side of things, we'll look to exploit that. Got it. Got it. Okay.
0: And you mentioned CLOs and distressed debt as part of this overall kind of opportunistic approach to high yield. Are those actually included in the high yield indices or no?
1: No, they're not. So that's that's another example of looking beyond the index and yeah. thinking outside of that and having an investor's willingness to take those on. While they may have some tracking error because they're off index, we think they are valuable components to a portfolio. Mm-hmm. And over time, will actually have you outperform a more targeted index-focused strategy. So yes, we do have allocations to CLOs and, and a minor amount of distress. Again, uh, that's very situational. And, and given where we sit from a a default rate scenario, those opportunities are are few and far between, but but there are some out there.
0: So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about investment grade. We've been talking about kind of an opportunistic approach to high yield, looking beyond the index, uh, kind of taking a strategic approach to investing in asset classes. Um, Tell me about how this works or doesn't work in the investment grade world.
1: I think it works very similarly. There's different risk profiles. Obviously, the risk of loss in an an investment-grade portfolio is dramatically different. Uh, The sensitivity to rates is much higher, but the risk of loss, as I said, is lower, and the volatility is lower. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you can't explore things outside your traditional government and corporate bonds to really start to add value to things. Um, that, again, includes securitizations, but it's not just focus on the traditional cards and cars, yeah. which is what folks were, were traditionally looking at from an ABS standpoint. Right. There's whole business securitizations. Again, there's the, the top part of the CLO capital structure that add a significant amount of value if you start to introduce those into the portfolio. Hmm. And really, when looking across the spectrum, CLOs remain very, very wide to their counterparts of similarly rated um, assets. And if you look at the corporate to a CLO, you can pick up anywhere from 100 to 150 basis points for the same type of rating and arguably less risk. Got
0: it. And so I guess if you're an investor and you're thinking about your investment grade allocation, it's a different animal to your high yield allocation and that you're thinking about Uh, I don't know if you would call it kind of a safe quote unquote sleep at night type allocation. I mean, you're looking to earn some yield, Mm -hmm. but you are not expecting uh, big drawdowns essentially. Um, Are you adding an element of risk if you start to say, okay, I wanna consider even though they're investment grade rated, I want to consider CLOs or some form of ABS. Um, are you adding risk there? And, and is is liquidity one of those big risks? And how do you think about
1: that? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and to go back to your exact question, I, I do think there's really three types of mandates as I look across. There's IG risk, IG returns, high yield risk, high yield returns, and equity risk, equity returns. Mm-hmm. And generally people have in their mind what that volatility is associated with each one of those asset classes. So I think you're right. When people think about their investment grade allocation, it's low vol, it's safe, it's sleep at night. The reality is making big rate calls in an IG portfolio can actually increase volatility more than any other thing can at times. If you get the rate call wrong and you've got a substantial amount of duration in your portfolio, that can wipe out all the good things you've done from the other side. How are you managing rate risk? Well, we do it a couple ways. And so depending on the strategy, it will depend on how we're approaching duration. Some of our our corporate only strategies will will be somewhere around the benchmark from that because we view our area of expertise in those strategies to be a return from credit spread. Mm -hmm. That's what we're looking to do. Um, We do have sovereign strategies, which their alpha source is really – for the most part, going to be rates and duration. And so that's over there. When we're speaking about these broader portfolios, frankly, that that we've been discussing a little bit and expanding outside your traditional index, you know, the main driver for returns or alpha from that is is security selection, if you will. And Mm -hmm. so we're very mindful to insulate ourselves from what could be dramatic moves in in the duration of our portfolio. So within those strategies, we actually take a very mechanical process to it. And we look at the shape of the curve from Mm -hmm. zero to three years and based on a, a math equation, position our duration. It's really meant to say to our investors and give them some clarity, you shouldn't see a large amount of returns coming from duration in this portfolio. There's going to be other sources. I do think that's one misconception people have about investment grade or quote-unquote safe fixed income mm-hmm. is the risk that is inherent in duration. And you can be in a portfolio only to see things going very, very well and have rates move up or down and dramatically move where your portfolio is from a market value standpoint.
0: Got it. And that kind of duration management philosophy, that's the sort of kind of rules-based formulaic kind of approach that I believe Barings has been implementing in our active short-duration strategy for 25-plus years,
1: right? Exactly. It's the exact same uh, formula that we've used, as you mentioned, for 25 years in active short. Um, it actually does give you a bit of a lift from your, your duration management, but it effectively, as I said, looks at the slope of the curve from zero to three years, mm-hmm. and depending on the steepness of that curve dictates where you should position your portfolio, and we do that um with an overlay to bring the portfolio in line with that. And it's proven to be very, very productive over the long term. Um, there's certainly pockets where it underperforms in a situation like today where where rates have been going down and you move from a very, very flat curve to an inverted curve at portions. Um, but over the longer term, we've got the discipline and we know that that has added value over a much longer period than just a, a, f- a few months. Got it. Got it. And then you, I think you are somewhat kind
0: of alluding to this, but if you think about it from a... Uh, uh, portfolio construction standpoint, um, are, there, are there benefits from adding, whether it's an investment grade CLO exposure or investment grade? ABS exposure or the balance at the kind of portfolio are there benefits at the portfolio level.
1: Yeah. So you're taking different types of risks. So the CLO, you're gonna, you're gonna introduce more credit risk effectively. And on the, the you know, ABS side, it's more consumer risk. And mm-hmm. on the CMBS Side, it would be more commercial real estate exposure. So you are diversifying your risk and therefore reducing some of the correlation of your asset classes. Also, some are fixed rates, some are floating rates. So doing so also can blend and maybe reduce some of your duration risk that you'd be taking from traditional. fixed income that that is mostly fixed in nature and and longer Mm -hmm. in duration. So the blending of those, I think, can really not only enhance returns, but also decrease your volatility if they're packaged correctly and the portfolio is built the right way. So I think if you've approached a manager who's got the skill set to understand and spends time dedicating to these resources and understanding the collateral and the the structural challenges of the vehicles— then I think it's the right place to be. If you're doing it with someone who is a traditionally a top-down manager who occasionally traffics in off-benchmark things, I think Mm -hmm. that's where you get into risk because then you're not fully understanding what you're doing. And that's truly off-benchmark, not only from a benchmark standpoint, but actually from a core competency standpoint of what a manager is doing.
0: Got it, got it. That makes a lot of sense. And so how about in the investment-grade world? As you look across the landscape here, um, looking with, you know investment grade corporate bonds government bonds investment grade CLOs ABS the whole universe what are you and the team seeing there today in terms of uh, where the
1: value is? Yeah, I still think the yield pickup from the, the CLOs is still very, very attractive, and it's hard to ignore that. What we've tried to do, though, is blend that a little bit with more higher quality securitizations, your traditional security securitizations on the ABS side. That's gonna include a lot of student loan securitizations that show much less volatility, but we're still getting a yield pickup. Okay. Um, so that's really on that side of the business. And then if you look at your traditional corporates, we've actually started increasing a little bit more EM, corporate exposure, mm. Um, and, and taking some out of the developed market.
0: Well, that's a good segue because I wanted to ask you about emerging markets that as well. So that's another obviously very broad, deep market with various sub-asset classes that arguably have have, uh, have different drivers. Um, tell me about the approach there i mean you know to kind of go back to some of your original points you were talking about investing strategically looking about beyond the index and kind of not making big sweeping credit or rate calls does that work in em Um, especially as you think about how macro and geopolitics can have such a big impact on em does this approach work there
1: it's a really good question. And so the EM market is $5 trillion in assets. So you break it into three groups. You've got the, the local currency bonds, which would be more your traditional government bonds, although there is a a growing portion of the corporate uh, market that's being issued in local currency. But if you take the $3 trillion um, in local currency, call it 900 in, in some, and, and just sovereign debt, which what we would call hard currency debt, which mm-hmm. would be things that are issued in, in dollars or, or euros for the most part. Um, and then you've got a corporate market that's that's over 2 trillion. So it's a very, very large market when you, you look at all those together. Um, Varying degrees, they move in, in tandem, but but some of them have much different risks. Um, you can look at some portions of the corporate market. If you're looking at the high-grade corporate that's part of a high-grade sovereign, that's going to act a lot like a developed market company right. um, and, and trade in similar fashion to that. So our view has been packaging these things together again and calling it a blended strategy of being able to take advantage of the corporate the sovereign and the local currency over mm-hmm. time is, is mm-hmm. a very attractive way to do it. And you, and you look at these three asset classes, they don't always move exactly together. Mm. There is more volatility in the local piece okay. um, because of the currency side of it. Sure, But you do, in this instance, have to have much more focus on the on the duration side because you really is a government bond component to right, that. Right. Um, but I it, arguably would, would say that the fundamentals are more prevalent in trading levels of EM countries than they are currently in DM countries. If you look at DM, there is so much manipulation from central banks right now that is moving where the curves are moving Mm. within our developed markets that EM is probably more appropriately priced from a fundamental level. And Mm. that's the way our team um, focuses on it. These are all model-driven. We're looking at Mm -hmm, the fundamentals mm -hmm. within the countries and picking a relative value between those countries. So I think it's actually more akin to what our skill set is, which is fundamental analysis than even some of the developed markets are.
0: Got it. Got it. And then I guess this kind of concept of looking at some of these opportunities outside the index, um, how do you think about that from an EM standpoint?
1: Yeah, I mean, so if you think of just, just corporates, obviously you're, you're within a narrow band there. So you expand it out to government bonds, you expand it out to local currencies. And then I'd say that that our approach in every strategy would do, and it's no different in, in EM is that we're we're index aware but we we move again beyond beyond the index and mm-hmm, we're willing mm-hmm. to take positions that aren't found in an index okay. and we're equally as comfortable as being having no allocation or zero exposure to something that's very large in the index right we are picking the best investments at a bottoms up level yep. and therefore we're not going to be wedded to what an index says an allocation should be ours is going to be much more driven on conviction Got it, got it. So, do you have any examples
0: to hand? I'm just curious, you know, looking at where the EM debt team's seeing value today. would be interesting to hear about Yeah, that.
1: I mean, some of the smaller countries would obviously be the names that don't roll off the tongue for, for <laughs> investors from, from that standpoint, but names like Albania and Macedonia are names that we do have levels of comfort in that you won't mm-hmm. find in an index. Right. Um, and then probably the most notable one that we're, we're at zero exposure is, is Venezuela, and there's no shortage of headlines on that. But despite being a relatively large position in the index, it doesn't compare compel us to take a position unless we think there's value there.
0: So what else, Mike, what what else is important for investors when they're looking at fixed income broadly today and, you know, evaluating strategies and managers? What else is important? Um, You know, does alignment of interests kind of Factor in to the equation.
1: I think it's it's critical, and you know, certainly we we'll consider our our investors a partnership with us when they choose us to be their asset manager. There's got to be some expectation set of how do we manage money and how do they, what do they want from their asset manager. We take a longer term approach to it. We're not looking to make you know decisions that will outperform in one month, and then if they don't work out, are going to massively underperform. We're really looking over a longer period mm-hmm, of time. Mm-hmm. It's in our heritage, it's in our DNA, it's our, the way our, our parent company has viewed things, and it's the way we manage money. So we're not taking outweighed risk in our portfolio to try and have home runs. It's just not the way we do it. We make conviction plays, but it's done under the guise of a portfolio that's built there yeah. that we think over the long run will provide investors a better risk-adjusted return, and in most cases, an absolute higher return than what they would get for not going in this. So I think setting the expectations early on with an investor of what you you or we as a as a manager bring to the table and how mm-hmm. we we approach it philosophically is critical in this regard and again, I think you, you've got to be mindful of folks who who take big top-down macro calls and that's the driver of performance because mm. while it's just like timing the market. if you can do it, Repeatedly and effectively, it's great. Right. I've seen very few people who can do it right. over and over yeah. again. It just doesn't happen. That it's hard to it's hard to do. Um, so I think you've got to be mindful when you go in there, especially in something like an investment grade portfolio, where mm-hmm. you're thinking of that as my relatively stable type portfolio. They can be do all the right things, but if you've got the duration wrong mm-hmm. and duration moves against you, it can wipe out a year's worth of returns. Yeah. So it is setting those expectations for investors and making them aware of how you approach things and then matching that with their expectations. And
0: then, you know, another one that, that uh, you know, I'll hear from time to time, especially around some of these more opportunistic type strategies in fixed income is whether or not fund size actually matters. I mean, do you have a view on, on that?
1: I think obviously to some extent fund size can matter i think it's it's a very very large number though especially in these markets i cited the, the numbers on em and that's a you know 5 trillion dollar market so there's yep. plenty of exposure sure. there. what i would say investors need to be more mindful of relative th- th- than than just the size of a fund is our, is their manager starting to have style drift so is this mm-hmm. a portfolio that you went into thinking this was a high yield fixed income portfolio, yep. Yep. and the next thing you know, you've got 20% in equities because they think uh, equities are cheap. Right. That's a risk, I think, that it, that managers tend to sometimes have as they get larger. They have style drift and get away from their core competencies. That would be the thing I'd be more mindful of. Certainly, there's large funds that that maybe, depending on the strategy, if it's fairly narrow, can create challenges. Um, but we've had experience of managing 2 to 2.5% two of a market in a fund and still being able to outperform from a total return standpoint. Got it. Got
0: it. Um well great. I mean we've covered a lot in a relatively short amount of time so I appreciate appreciate you running through this with me. Um any final takeaways from your perspective?
1: No, you know, I think I'll, I'll just add that that I think the, the last point we touched on is critical. You know, make sure the expectations of, of your manager and what you're doing are are in line. Find someone with a deep talent base in the things that they're trafficking in. And if they're if they're telling you that they're doing other things that they just really don't have the team to support, mm-hmm. you know, that's probably something to be aware of. Um, and then look, I think there there is levels of innovation that you can do within portfolios we didn't even cover on introducing private assets to, to mm, portfolios yep. there's a lot of things that can be done now within a within a broad manager skill set to really start to add value to a, to an sure. a, a portfolio and optimize that portfolio and, and really capture the upside and then mitigate some of the downside yeah yeah that's great well
0: thank you very much I mean I, I really found it valuable to to just hear the way you're thinking about it I mean the kind of framework from Investing strategically to looking beyond the index to to kind of avoiding some of these big creditor rate calls um, I think sheds a lot of light on the way you and and the teams here are are managing money today So I really appreciate your time. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from the team here at bearings Please go to apple podcasts or spotify and search streaming income or find us on the web at bearings.com That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again.